If you've got a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 2. We normally would dismiss our kiddos, uh, third grade and under at this point, uh, but they are in here with us on the third Sunday of every month um, to experience a little more of big church, right? As you used to call it maybe whenever you were a kid. So, um, but they're going to be in here with us today, and I know kiddos make noise, and they move around, and they are going to bother you more than they bother me, so... Just let me say that at the outset. But this morning we are getting close to landing the plane on this series that we're in partnership with Rockwall Friendship Baptist Church called One, uh, talking about unity in an age of division. Uh, we got this week's sermon, next week's sermon, and then the following week will be a one-off for Memorial Day. And following Memorial Day, uh, we'll launch a new series of messages this summer entitled Unshakable. It'll be a ser- series of, of sermons through the book of Daniel. And so we'll be working our way through Daniel's uh, book in the Old Testament this summer and some into the fall as well. So that's what's up on the uh, horizon for our preaching schedule. But this morning we're in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 13 together. If you don't have a copy in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me and you can follow along there. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes in into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's Word. In James chapter 2, we're reminded uh, that God's rule and reign over the earth is uh, that of a kingly rule and reign, that He has a kingdom. And last week we talked a lot about how every nation, every ethnos, every people group has a certain culture, certain lens through which they view life and they make decisions and they view the world. Every kingdom and country has that kind of culture and God's kingdom is no different. In James uh, chapter 2, verse 5, James refers explicitly to God's kingdom. And in verse 8, he talks about the royal law or the law of the kingdom, the law given to us by the king. And we'll take a look at that here in a moment. But within God's kingdom, amongst God's people, within God's church, James says there is no room for playing favorites. There's no room for what he calls partiality. So this morning as we unpack James chapter 2, we want to consider what partiality is, right? why it's so serious, 
What is the opposite of partiality and then how we ought to put it away as God's people? So that's where we're going this morning. So first of all, let's consider what partiality is. What does it mean to be partial? Partiality is this, church. It is preferential treatment based on worldly standards. Partiality is preferential treatment based on worldly standards. Now, the Greek word under our word in the text partiality is the word, Greek word for face. Okay? You're like, what in the world does that mean? Right? In essence, what would take place in the ancient world, the way that they used this term, right, was that you would receive a face or you would reject a face. Okay? And so what that meant was you would receive some people on the basis of, basis of what they looked like, and you would reject other people on the basis of what they looked like. You'd receive some and give them preferential treatment due to their rank or their status or their stature or their wealth or their power or their influence, and you would reject others or treat them differently on the basis of those same measurements. Right? It's assuming something about someone based on how they dress, where they live, their level of education, whether they can give to your cause, support your platform, be a part of your team, or a part of your party. Right? And partiality, this type of preferential treatment where you say to one who comes in dressed in fine clothes, wearing gold jewelry, hey, have a seat of honor, and you say to the poor man, hey, you can sit down here at my feet. This kind of partiality, listen, it can be premeditated. In other words, it can be thought out in advance. There are some, in some instances, in some context, where it is... In, in embedded prejudice that is premeditated. But oftentimes, listen, oftentimes partiality is just instinctual. It is instinctual because it's a part of our fallen human nature. And listen, it impacts relationships at every level of human development. I see this in my, on my block, okay, with children. Okay, over the last several years, we've had family after family put in pools up and down the street. And the first family that put in a pool down the street from us, all of a sudden, all the kids on the block were treating those kids a little bit different than the rest of the kids on the block, right? So they could get an invite to come to the kid's house that now had a pool, right? It happens in childhood. It happens in adolescence. We tend to treat the cool kids and the popular kids and the athletic kids differently than the awkward kids or the shy kids or the disabled kids, it happens in adulthood. We tend to treat the people who show up in new cars and designer clothing different than those who show up in a 93 Oldsmobile. Okay? Or wearing clothes that are not new, that need mending, that need patches. In fact, that's exactly what James is talking about here when he says a gold-fingered man. That's literally what it says in the text, in the Greek. right? A man with a golden finger. Okay? Not James Bond. Okay? That's what some of you are thinking right now. But a man who's got gold and jewelry all over his hands, he's wearing fine clothes. In other words, to project his stature and status within the community that he was operating in. Right? We can be guilty of that so often in adulthood. And listen, just to open up the box a little bit further and be very transparent with you, pastors struggle with partiality with the remaining flesh within us that we have to put to death, but we are prone to treat those differently who we think can help us build ministry or build a church versus those that we say they don't have the skill set, they don't have the gifting, or they don't have the uh, capability to help us build ministry or build a church. We, tend to cozy, we can at times tend to cozy up to some 
and stay distant from others. Listen, it affects human relationships at every level. And this word partiality in the Greek is also a plural word. Okay? So what, it, what that means is, James isn't saying partiality, but partialities. Right? James is interesting because James is kind of like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs took the law and then oppressed it into like case studies. Okay? Said, here's the principle, here's how it flushes itself out in practice in life. And that's what James does here. He lays down the principle in verse 1, my brothers show no partiality. And then in verses 2 to 7, he gives us a case study. He says, here's an instance of how partiality might express itself in your context. However, he says partialities. Not to say that partiality is exclusive to economics, though it involves economics and it involves fashion and it involves wealth those dynamics, but it also can include, right, appearances. I, I wish I could make this stuff up, right? But this, when I tell you, you're going to like, you're making that up. I'm not making this up, right? Several years ago, I had a family in this church invite friends from the community to come visit. They were looking for a church to connect to, and so they visited for several weeks. I initiated contact with the, with the husband and went to, to lunch with him and answered questions for him, got to know him. They said how much they appreciated the fellowship and they loved the preaching. And then all of a sudden, they stopped showing up. And so they stopped showing up and I asked their friend, hey, I hadn't seen them in a while. And they said, yeah. They said that they, they loved the church, but there weren't enough cute boys here for their daughters to date. I, I wish I was making that up, but I, I'm not. Right? Appearance, appearances, right? Or ethnicity, ethnicity. I, 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 before Karen and I moved from Louisiana to the Dallas area, uh, I was serving on staff at a church, a historic First Baptist church in a town that we went to college in, and that church was located in the downtown area of that town. And like many of those small, even smaller downtown areas, the makeup of that downtown area had changed over the previous 20 to 30 years, and it was now more representative of ethnic minorities, and the church was still exclusively the ethnic majority other than the custodian. So what that, and, and it was made very plain to me as I served as a student pastor there and began to reach into the neighborhoods around that church, right, and invite those kids to come on Wednesday nights and come to the student ministry and be involved and be a part, that what the church had done numbers of years before I even got there back in the 70s was they had opened up Main Street Mission, one mile down the road from the church, so that as that and that and you thought, well, that's a good thing, right? They can serve meals and they can have a coat closet and they can do all kinds of community-based ministry there out of that building, um, less than a mile down the road from the church. But what happened was is that Main Street Mission was founded, and it was it was made plain to me. It was founded so that the ethnic people, ethnic minorities in those neighborhoods, had a place to go to church that wasn't in the ethnic majority white First Baptist Church. And I heard it from parents as I began to reach into those neighborhoods of what are you doing bringing those kids in to mix with our kids? There's a church for them that we opened just down the street. That is partiality, church. That is partiality. It exists around intellect or social skills. Right, we can have all kinds of different partialities, plural. 
So it's not exclusive to economics. It is preferential treatment based on worldly standards. That's what James is talking about. Now you may ask yourself the question, what's the big deal with partiality, right? Why is it so serious? Let me give you two reasons why it's serious. And they're both, I believe, in this text. And first, and first of all, partiality, it violates human dignity. It violates human dignity. Notice the two examples of sins that James compares partiality to. In the same context, as he's talking about sin, he talks about partiality, and then he talks about two other sins that we might consider or rank to be higher up on the list than just hanging out with the cool kids. Right? He talks about murder, and he talks about adultery. Now, why does James, in the same context of talking about partiality, talk about murder and talk about adultery? Here's why I believe that he does this. Because he wants us to understand that something that we consider to be little is actually large. Something that we might consider to be minuscule is actually major in the Christian life. Murder is a sin that violates the inherent dignity of human life because it's saying to someone else, my life is more valuable than yours, so I will take your life in order to preserve mine. Adultery undermines human flourishing. It destroys stability in families. These are two massive, they're part of the top ten, right? In the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, we did a series on those several years ago. The Ten Commandments, part of the top ten. And in the same context that James is talking about preferential treatment based on worldly standards, he uses the illustration and compares it to murder and adultery. Right? And, and, but we still wrestle with it, right? Is, is, is showing partiality or playing favorites really as serious as killing someone or sleeping with another man's woman or another, uh, 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 another woman's man, right? Is it really that serious? But in verse 9, James, I think, begins, continues to unearth this reality, right? He goes on to say that the commission of this sin leads us to being convicted by the law as transgressors. That when we commit any one sin, we're convicted by the entire weight of the law. Let me give you an illustration of this. James actually gives us an illustration in the text, but let me give you this illustration. He says essentially this, that when we break one commandment, no matter how little or minor we consider it to be, we find ourselves to be under the judgment of the entire law. Because whenever you go outside at night, right on a clear night, and you look up at the sky, and the moon is in I don't know, waxing or waning crescent. Whichever one you prefer, okay? But it's the, all you see is a barely a little sliver of the moon up there. What you're seeing is the moon. Right? You're seeing the moon. Whenever you take a rock and you throw it through a pane of glass, what happens when you throw that rock through the pane of glass? It shatters the entire sheet. One rock, one chunk of concrete, thrown through the pane of glass shatters the entire thing. James says when we violate one of God's commands, we are guilty of breaking the entire law and stand under its judgment. So James essentially says this. He says, the act of showing partiality and failing to love your neighbor as yourself, but, so, but, but then saying, listen, why does that matter? I honored my mom and dad, right? I kept this one is the same thing as saying 
listen, listen, I, I know I may have committed adultery, but I didn't kill anyone. Or I know I killed that person, but I didn't sleep with somebody else's spouse. Right? It doesn't, that, does that make sense to anybody? Oh, thank you. That's what James is saying. It's a serious sin. And here's why I believe it's so serious. Not only because it's a part of God's commands, but listen, partiality has a powerful suction. Right? You ever been out to the ocean before? Whenever the waves are crashing against the shore and they got all those flags up there on the beach? Right? And they've got right, like green flag, right? Go out and do whatever you want. Swim out, play, all those kinds of things. And they got a yellow flag. And they got red flags, right? Each indicating levels of severity of caution and even restricting you access to the water because of the conditions that exist out there. Because certain conditions can create these undertoes that whenever they, they get you, what do they do? They suck you under, don't they? And they can drown you down there and hold you down there. And that's what partiality does. It, drown, it can drown us in the depths of human depravity. It creates a suction that pulls us into all kinds of sin, expresses itself in all kinds of injustice. For instance, partiality treats a person with more grace and compassion based upon their age, based upon their gender, or based upon their ethnicity. Partiality is underneath racial profiling and hate crimes. Partiality even, listen, is part of the root of abortion. It's to say, listen, preferential treatment to some life but not to all life. Partiality is the root of ethnic cleansing from the Jews in Nazi Germany to the Tutsis in Rwanda to the Bosniaks and Bosnian Croats in, in Croatia. See, the atrocities of genocide are essentially this, sizing people up and treating them differently on the basis of worldly standards of what we esteem their value to be. That's partiality. Partiality produced slavery. This transatlantic slave trade and the subsequent years of racial tensions that emerged from it. Right? But it all began because at some point in human history... Somebody looked upon somebody else with a different color of skin and gave preferential treatment to their own skin over and against the skin color of another. Partiality is today producing slavery in the sex trafficking industry. There's people all across the globe who young women, young men who are being promised a better life somewhere. Right? If they would come with these individuals only to enslave them and capture them and sell them for perverse purposes. It's saying, sizing people up and saying, I can raise my economic capital by leveraging other human beings created in the image of God. Preferential treatment to some, but not to others. It's underneath being angered by some sin and apathetic towards others. Partiality is also sounding the alarm against one threat, but saying that sounding the alarm against an equally dangerous threat is just being divisive. It's partiality. It's preferential treatment on the basis of worldly standards, and it ends up violating human dignity by saying some have value, others do not. Or they only have value insofar as they have value to me. But second of all, partiality, it denies the gospel. 
It denies the gospel. I want you to consider with me for a moment that all through the Bible, God has a special relationship to the poor and the marginalized. Which is why in the prophets, in Isaiah chapter 1, he says, I am weary of your new moons, of your feast, and of your festivals. I hate, I hate it whenever you come and pray. I've shut my ears and closed my eyes. And then he says in Isaiah 1.17, he says, rather than go through all the pomp and circumstance of rituals and customs on an annual basis, he says this, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. The orphan and the widow, the fatherless and the widow in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible were protected classes under God's law. Why? Because they were in need and had no means to provide for themselves. They were poor and destitute. In Amos chapter 2, Verses 6 and 7, we read these words as God pronounces judgment upon Israel for the three transgressions of Israel and for four. I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. Can you get that visual image in your mind? The poor laying on the ground and those who were intended to be God's people, who were God's people, crushing their head and grinding it into the dirt. Now why does God chastise His people so frequently? I could read you many other verses from the prophets. Why did He chastise them so frequently for their treatment of the poor? Here's why. Because God had carved out provisions for the poor in His Word, in His law. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people with, with you who is poor, you shall not be a money lender to him, or like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. You know what that means, church? That means <laughs> right, that being a Christian and owning a payday lending check cashing business cannot go hand in hand. Exodus, or Leviticus chapter 19, verse 10. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God in Leviticus 19 institutes the practice of gleaning. You know what the practice of gleaning was? You see it in practice in the book of Ruth. It's whenever you harvested your fields, you planted wheat, you planted grain, you had a vineyard full of grapes, and you went in at the time of harvest, and you had workers collecting all the grain and all of the grapes to bring it into the vats and to the threshing floors. He says, don't harvest to the edges and fringes of the field but leave a portion around the edge for the poor to come in to receive and harvest themselves to make provision for their families. He says, when the grapes fall as they're being plucked, don't pick those up off the ground, but leave them there for the poor and for the sojourners, for the resident aliens in your midst. Why? So the poor would have provision. God carves out provision in His law for the poor of the nation. And what that means is this, is if you own a business today, if you want to take that principle and try and apply it, if you own a business today, that means you don't take all of your profits 
and reinvest them in the business or take them as bonuses, but you take some of those profits and you give them to establishing care for the needy. I know I'm not popular, right? Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, verse 9, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Moses says, God says to the people through Moses, He says, when you find someone poor within your midst in the land the Lord's going to give you when you cross that river, He says, give to them freely, give to them generously, sufficient for their need. Right Now there was a practice in those days that whenever a debt was incurred, every seventh year there would be a release of the debt. It's beautiful. God puts that in place so that poverty isn't perpetuated. There would be a release of the debt. And God says to His people, He says, if it's the sixth year and eleventh month, and somebody is in need, then you don't close your hand and close your heart to them saying, in 30 days, it's just all going to be forgiven anyway. But you open your hand and you open your heart and you give to the poor and to your brother who has need. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus puts it perhaps more explicitly than anyone when He says this. He says, listen, there's coming a day in which the sheep and the goats are going to be separated. Some of my right and some of my left. And they're not going to be divided between the pagans and the Christians, but between those who are true converts and those who are false converts. And He says one of the ways that you'll be able to distinguish between the two is because of the way that they treated the prisoner, the way they treated the poor, the way that they treated those who were in need. And some who will say, Jesus... When did we ever, right? He says, listen, if you've done it to them, you've done it to me. And they'll say, when did we ever see you? And he says, when you saw the poor, when you saw the prisoner, when you saw those who were in need. Or in James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In the very verse prior to this Discussion of partiality. James brings it back. Now listen, I share all that with you to show you this. This is not some minor, one-off thing hidden in an appendix somewhere. This is a theme that runs the course of the entire Bible. The entire Bible. And in verses 5-6, to this is what James says. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. James says this. He says this. 
God's chosen those who are poor in the world. He set His affection upon those who are poor in the world. God has a special relationship to those who are poor in the world. He's carved out provisions for them in His law. And He says, you showing partiality to one who is wealthy, treating them differently with preferential treatment over those who have not, is dishonoring the poor whom God has chosen. And what does it mean that God's chosen the poor in the world? Listen, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed it, right? The poor embrace the gospel unlike the middle and upper classes. They do, right? They throw themselves upon the mercy and provision of God unlike those in the middle and upper class. Now, listen, some statistics somewhere says 89% of America thinks they're middle class, okay? Don't know how true that is, but they think it, Okay? But the poor, they embrace the reality of God's provision in Jesus Christ. Right? In addition, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom, you've got to have a poverty of spirit. And sometimes, sometimes material wealth keeps us from having a poor in spirit mentality. Because we want to come to God and say, God, here's my virtues. God, here's what I have done. Here's my achievements. Here's my accolades and accomplishments. My hands are full, God. Listen, these are the virtues which, by which you should receive me. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the way the kingdom works. And if you're going to come, you don't come with your hands full. You come with them empty, throwing yourself on God's mercy, not pleading your own merits. The poor materially, the poor spiritually, they get the gospel in ways that the middle class and the upper class oftentimes do not. So how does partiality deny the Gospel? Here's how. God. God is the only being in human history who is independently wealthy and indiscriminately generous. Independently wealthy and indiscriminately generous. God did not size me up before He saved me. And I thank God for that. And God, if you're in Christ this morning, God did not size you up before He saved you. He did not look down on us and say, there are virtues there that I can work with. But He freely bestowed His grace. Indiscriminately upon those that He loves. Salvation is a miracle and a wonder of sheer grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. That God being independently wealthy, He bankrupts heaven in the sending of His Son who would give His life and bleed His last drop of blood for the remission of sin. And for us, for us to give preferential treatment to others on the basis of worldly standards, to fail to care for those God has chosen and to dishonor the poor is to project to the world a discriminatory God. Say, God is for you if you've got my virtues. It is to deny the Gospel. undermines, it violates human dignity and denies the gospel. 
Now, what is the opposite of partiality? Listen, many in our, in our culture would say the opposite of partiality is equality. It's just not simply true. Because James says the opposite of partiality is love. It is love. Listen, you can legislate equality. You can. We've been doing it now since 1964 in our nation. In laws and bills that have been enacted. And at times those laws and bills are right and just and necessary. You can legislate equality. But I love the way Tom Skinner, who's a black pastor in the 1970s, in an, uh, a little small ebook called How Black is the Gospel, he says it this way. He says, if you want to change a man truly, you must change him from the inside out. You can't really change him by just altering his environment. The problems of man are basically theological in nature. Their ultimate solutions will only be realized if man accepts the peace terms laid down by God. It has been said that you can't pass a law to make one man love another. He says many of the ills in our society oftentimes, at least legally, do not call for love but for justice. It is at the point where a man needs justice that laws must be passed. Laws must be passed to create a culture and a climate for justice, but laws do not create a climate for love. They are not intended to do that. From a scriptural point of view, it is love which transcends law, not law which transcends love. Love is higher than the law. It goes further than the law. It gives more than the law. Always. Right? You cannot legislate love in the human heart. I remember being in South Africa several years ago and sitting down with a group of young adults and they were talking about the end of apartheid in their nation. And, and when Nelson Mandela came into power and, and, and the, 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 the customs and the laws of the nation began to change. And as they talked about that, listen, I, I just I saw such a stark echo into our own situation because one of the things they said was, when apartheid ended, the laws of the land changed, but the hearts did not. Because you can legislate justice, but you cannot legislate love. And love always goes further, gives more, invests, sacrifices deeper than the law. Consider how this, how this might work. See, many people think the opposite of partiality that favors the rich is not to observe the differences between the classes. But that is not true. That is not true. Rather, it is to see those differences and not treat people differently on account of them. Many people think that the opposite of racism is colorblindness, but the true polar opposite of racism is to see the color of someone's skin but not treat them differently on account of it. You can legislate these things and make laws that try to mandate sensitivity seminars and all these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, Christianity has the only answer to the partiality within our culture, and it is love. It has the only answer. In verse 9, there is a, there's another but. Another contrasting statement where James in verse 9 says of a contrast between the sin of partiality and the fulfillment of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. So James doesn't contrast partiality and justice. He doesn't contrast partiality and equality. 
he contrasts partiality and love. Partiality and love. He's ref- likely reflecting on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right, that comes on the heels of Jesus' command to love God and love others. And in response to the question from the religious folks of Jesus' day, because they want to quantify, like, who do I got to love, Jesus? <laughs> and Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and He says, anyone who finds themselves to be in a position of need, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. The opposite of partiality is love, church. And within the culture of God's kingdom, the way that we see people, the way that we see the world, we ought to put away all partiality. Let me give you two ways we can go about doing that. And then we're done. The first one is this. That you glory in the gospel. You glory in the gospel. See, some of you heard me use this illustration before. Partiality what it ends up doing is, is it results in us treating people like purses. Okay? Now listen, I'm, I'm not a lady, but I'm married to one. Okay? Um, and I'm married to a very easy one. Okay? Right? And so she's got one purse that she carries around. But listen, I've heard stories. Okay? Of some, some ladies out there somewhere, right? Who have like different purses for different outfits. Right? And so for every occasion, there's a different purse. Right? You got a clutch and you got a uh, over-the-shoulder thing, you got your little backpack that you use whenever you're out and about as a mom, right? You got all that stuff you just shove down in there. Right, some purses you open and there's just like, I can't even find anything in here. There's just like small rodents living at the bottom that you never even knew about, right? But you got a different purse for every occasion because you want to accessorize every outfit and every occasion with a purse, right? And partiality causes us to treat people like accessories to our lives. They accessorize us. Right? They make us look good in certain circles, on certain occasions. Right? And so we treat people differently in this particular context in order to get in close with these particular people, and then we treat the same people differently in this context because we want to get in close with these particular group of people. Right? That's partiality 101. Right? And all of that, church, listen, it comes out of a desire. A desire for glory. You know what glory is in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament? Glory in the Old Testament means weight or worth or significance, value. In the New Testament, it's honor, exaltation. And listen, one of the driving forces of partiality is the desire for significance and worth, for exaltation and value among people. It's why we treat some people with preference and other people's without it. It's because we want to get in close with some because they'll raise our social capital in certain circles. And listen, this can be different from morning to night, okay? Right? You want to get in close with those who are like, care about the poor and care about the marginalized and care about these folks and care about those like you treat them differently on Monday morning right whenever you're around those folks because you want to be in that circle and you get around other folks you're like yeah we don't really give much thought or attention to the poor you're like yeah neither do I right it's, it's partiality 
creates these double standards, but it's oftentimes as a fight for glory. We want to know that we matter. We want to have significance and worth and value. So we want to raise our social capital so we accessorize ourselves with people who can do that. And the only antidote, the only antidote to fighting against those lesser sources of glory is a greater glory. That's it. Uh, okay, there's no seven-step process. It's a, it's, it's a being infatuated with a greater glory. In James chapter 2, verse 1, this is what James says. He says, and it's no consequence that he describes Jesus as our glorious Lord or the Lord of glory. In other words, the one who is the weightiest the one who is the heaviest, the one who is the most significant, the one who has the greatest value and worth. And so church, what you have to do if you, when you are prone to partiality is say, what is it that I'm trying to get from that person that I'm giving preferential treatment to that I can only get from God? What is it that I need from them? Why am I trying to get close to them? Why am I buddying up to them? Why am I preferentially treating them? What do I need from them that only God can provide me? Significance, weight, worth, value. You've got to stare at the person of Jesus Christ and into the perfect law of God. In fact, James, in James chapter 1, talks about the Bible being a mirror. Right? And he talks about how you look into the perfect law that's revealed in God's Word. And he says the man who is a, not, is, is a hearer of the Word but not a doer, what does he do? He goes away and he forgets what he looks like. And so often whenever we fall prey to partiality in our hearts and in our minds, it's because we've forgotten who we are. We need to look back in the book and see who we are. See who Jesus is. And be captivated by His glory so that we don't need glory from someone else, but we can treat everyone, not with equality, but with love. With love. No matter where they've come from. So you've got a glory in the Gospel. The fact that God did not size you up before He saved you, for the fact that God did not see your virtues, and that caused Him to value you, but that God set His affection upon you before you ever did one good deed, and He chose you to be His own son or daughter, and He brought you in time and space into relationship with His Son by the power of His Holy Spirit, and He came to dwell in you through that same Holy Spirit. You fight Desire for glory with glory. And then second of all, you magnify mercy. Magnify mercy. Now there's two ways you and I can go about magnifying something, right? You can either take something and put it under a microscope. Okay? Now if you've ever looked at like a bed bug under a microscope, it looks like this gnarly sci-fi monster. Okay? Uh, those little things that you can't even see with your own eyes. Okay? You can probably feel them crawling around on you. Right? That'd be a little gross. But... I mean, it, they, they look like something like out of Power Rangers, you know? Like back in the day, my kids used to watch Power Rangers, all these tentacles coming off, and it's nasty-looking bugs. But bed bugs are things you can't see with the naked eye, but you put them on our microscope, and they look all of a sudden huge, right? These massive things that will suck the very life out of your body. But there's another way to magnify something, right? 
is to take something that's very, very far away, very distant, and cause it to be seen as up close and personal. Like through a telescope, whenever you look at planets or you look at stars that are way out there, but all of a sudden they're brought very close because you're looking through them through a lens that's magnifying them, causing them to be seen as they actually are. They look small to our naked eye, but that lens is causing them to be seen more closely representative to what they actually are in reality. Those are two ways to magnify something. And over and over and over again in the Bible, we're told to magnify the Lord, magnify the Lord, magnify the Lord. And it's not telling us to take something very small and make it look really, really big. It's telling us to take someone who transcends us, right, and cause him to be seen as he actually is in the way that we live our lives. And in verse 12, James says, So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty. The law as it's given through Jesus Christ Himself. And what does Jesus say is the summation of the law? Love God and love others as you love yourself. Right? Which means this. That the judgment that all of humanity will experience is not just going to be a judgment of our words and our actions, but also of our motives. Because you can say something and you can do something prompted by a motive of partiality, or you can say something and you can do something prompted by a motive of love. The law of liberty summarizes all the commandments, but it goes deeper than them and says, not only will you be judged on the things you say and the things you do, but why you said them and why you did them. What motive was driving it? What, pa- what passion you were pursuing? All right, that's what James is talking about here. We'll be judged by the law of liberty, so don't do something out of partiality, but do it out of... Come on. you've been with- Love. Love. And then he goes on to say, for those who show no mercy shall receive no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. And what I believe James to be saying is this. That we ought to so speak and we ought to so act in a way as to take the mercy of God and cause it to be seen up close and personal in the way that we talk and the way that we live, all motivated by love. For our brothers and sisters and for those who are in need. Now mercy... Mercy is the withholding of what we deserve. So when my kids pop off to me and I don't spank their bottoms, that's mercy. Okay? You may say it's entitlement. At times it may be. Right? But it's mercy. Not giving somebody what they do deserve. And God's mercy to us, church, is the withholding of what we do deserve. And you know what we deserved? Utter and total abandonment by God complete severing of relationship with God. And yet His mercy, He says, I will withhold that. I will withhold that. And I will come near. And not only come near, but I'll be within you by the power of My Spirit. Now, let's take that and think it out in the context of our relationships. And I promise we're almost done. I promise. We magnify mercy, church when we move toward the poor, when we move 
toward the needy rather than just waiting for them to come to us. Listen, the way that we handle the poor in our nation, progressives, okay, they want to build large government housing projects and start large social programs. Conservatives, on the other hand, what they want to do is just let the market forces play out and people can just kind of fend for themselves. But Christians, they don't want to do either one of those things. Neither one. Because Christians want to move, ought to want to move into relationships with the poor where they can have conversations with real people about their real needs. On one side, the progressives are assuming what the poor need. On the other side, the conservatives are assuming what the poor need. Christians ought to move into relationship with the needy, ought to move into relationship with the poor, where they can say, Tell me your story. And what do you need? How can we help? How can we serve? How can we include you in a part of solving these problems? Rather than on the left assuming what they need, on the right assuming what they need, actually sitting down and talking with them about what their needs are. We magnify mercy by not abandoning the poor to market forces or relegating them to government housing, but by having them over for dinner. By building relationships with them, with their children, knowing their story. We magnify mercy, church. Listen, some of you are going to talk to me about this one afterwards. By not adopting every single child who is put up for adoption just because their single mom or their young parents can't afford to raise them. Listen, if that's the only issue, if that's the only issue, because they are living below the poverty line, and they're afraid that CPS is going to come take their children away because of the living conditions they're in? I, I, did, I did the math, right? To go through an adoption agency within our nation for a domestic adoption ranges anywhere from twenty dollars to $30,000 to work with a reputable adoption agency. And if the only thing keeping a family from being together is twenty to thirty thousand dollars? You're gonna if you're gonna invest that money to adopt that child. What if I'm just throwing it? What if you invested in that family, in transitional housing, in job and life skills classes, in education, in helping them get on to their feet? If you're gonna spend the same twenty to thirty thousand dollars to take them away from their mother and father, why not invest that twenty dollars to $30,000 and potentially see them with their mother and father? I'm not saying that in every case, but in some. What if we set up nonprofits in our county or partnered with those who are already here to serve the rural poor, not only with a check, but with compassion and in relationships? What if instead of finding government assistance for the marginalized, we welcomed them into our Sunday gathering, our life group, our family, and cared for those in need? And what if, what if instead of doing nothing, we just did something? Something. To magnify the mercy. What we deserved, utter abandonment by God. He says, I'm going to give you mercy and place my spirit within you. And what if we, as His people, so we're not going to abandon those who are in need and drive further and further and further divisions 
between classes. But we're going to move towards them. Partiality is preferential treatment based on worldly standards. It violates human dignity, denies the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. God calls us to be a people of love. And if you're going to do that, you've got to put to death all the other glories that you've been chasing and be infatuated with the glory of Christ and then show the mercy of God to be as magnificent as it actually is. Let's pray together. Father, today, we thank you for your generosity to us that you did not withhold from us what we needed. And then in our hour of need, God, we, undeserving poor, though we were, you gave indiscriminately. Even knowing that some would abuse what you gave. Still you gave. Father, may your church, this church, be a people who put away partiality. Who reflect the culture of your kingdom. Who move toward those who are in need. who are actively fighting with an infatuation of the glory of Christ against all the other glories that we seek from people. And Father, may we show Your mercy to be truly mar- as marvelous as it is. Knowing that it's our motives that drive the actions that we commit, the words that we speak, for which we will give an account as well. Create in us by your grace a love, not only for brother and sister, but for those who are not part of the family yet. Not only for those who can do things for us, but for those who can't do anything for us. Help us to reflect your love in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.